0: Missed the show? No worries. We've got you covered. On point and on the podcast, the collateral damage of this pandemic now includes children being denied surgeries at sick kids. This is not just collateral damage. We're talking about kids' lives that need to be uh, fixed surgically, and they cannot, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk to a 25-year-old Guelph man who saved the life of a nine-month-old baby who was dying, did not know this baby, but said, hey, I'll step up, And give a body part to that child. We'll talk to him. And are we one step closer to finally taking control of our data back when it comes to big tech? Important legislation coming forward that will give us more protection and control. Let's get talking.
1: your point you just don't ever get am i getting through to answer the point do you understand there is a point point. That point
2: where enough is enough
1: here's alex pearson on global news radio Listening.
2: miss wilson so, raybold
1: the question they're gonna ask me how much do i make now like 250 i wanna re- I, wonder, sorry, uh, raybold, I wanna. i'm sorry miss raybold i want to remind the honorable members to turn off their microphones when they're not voting
0: Ah, don't you hate when your inside thoughts don't stay inside and you're caught on a hot mic sticking your overpriced heels in your mouth? Alex Pearson with you on this November 17th. Hope you're having a terrific day. And uh, that voice you heard, that would be one Mariam Monsef, Minister for Women and Gender Equality, Minister for Rural Economic Development, and boy, did she stick her foot in it. There she is, you know, on virtual vote. And they were uh, voting on an NDP motion calling for taxpayers making over $20 million to pay more. She, of course, voted against the motion, but not before her, vo- her voice filled the House of Commons where she spoke over Jody Wilson-Raybould because, of course, she forgot to mute herself. And there she's heard, wondering aloud, like, how much is my salary? Like, 250 Uh, no, Minister. It's not like two hundred and fifty. it's more like 269000 a year, plus car, living expenses, travel, and so on. Like gag me. And the gasp you hear there, yeah, that's her colleagues horrified by her stupidity. But boy, it must be nice earning so much that you actually forget the figure. I assure you, I've never forgotten. I know exactly how much I make. I know exactly how much I pay out every month, and I know how excited I get when I find five bucks in the couch. And I bet you're probably the same. And when you compare what the minister makes to those living in the community she serves, which is Peterborough, it's four times the median household income of $59,000. So not only did that moment make Monsef a laughingstock among her colleagues, but it speaks volumes. It speaks against her party's brand, You know, it speaks against their fight for the middle class, which she's (laughs) clearly not a part of. It speaks to a minister whose portfolio also deals with economic development and who shows herself to be so severely out of touch with the times. Not just throwing those numbers around to her staff, who she's clearly talking to, and likely probably thought, I don't even make a quarter of that, honey. You know, but worse, we've got millions of Canadians barely hanging on. And I bet a lot of those people are in her community. You know, people who are scared, desperate, people visiting food banks at record levels. And she's also speaking to businesses closing on a daily basis that are still waiting for this minister's own government to deliver aid that they were promised weeks, if not months ago. And there she is wondering, like, how much do I actually make? Oh, good Lord. My God. And it's not her first time stepping in it. I mean, she was a disastrous minister of electoral reform, which she had absolutely zero understanding of, and a portfolio she got dumped from after being dumped from international development. I mean, she has a lot of portfolios, but because she's a girl who falls on her boss's every word, she continuously fails upward. And so, look, the good news for Monsef is that her boss is too busy focusing focusing on other stuff to notice. Certainly not focused on Canadians, of course. No, no, no. He's not concerned about solving COVID-19 these days. He's taken advantage of the opportunity that the devastation could offer. And I'm not sure you've seen or heard this, but there has been a video circulating for now a couple of weeks where he's pontificating to his globalist pals at the united nations because as he explains it pretty clearly in this clip he sees his pandemic as a chance for us to reset global economies
1: building back better means getting support to the most vulnerable while maintaining our momentum on reaching the 2030 agenda for sustainable development and the sdgs canada is here to listen and to help this pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality and climate change.
0: Mm. Yeah. So I guess the Prime Minister sees thousands of dead people and sick people and a collapsed economy as a perfect opportunity for the great reset of our global economy, using, of course, global uh, climate change to bring the social economic change to the world at large. And this crap may play well to the Silver Spoon crowd around the world. But here again, it's a disconnect. It is totally tone deaf. And if you think about it, it is actually pretty crass. I mean, how can we believe we're all in this together? Or he has our backs when he's openly musing to the United Nations that our despair and destruction, actually, it's a really great opportunity to fill our globalist fantasies, guys, because that's what he's trying to do. They actually don't think this is such a bad thing now. It's like, run with it. What an opportunity. We got to seize the moment. He said these things in the last couple of months. Okay, well, yeah, you didn't run on this. You have no mandate for it. So maybe the prime minister, instead of trying to impress his very rich global friends, maybe he should actually focus on the crisis at hand. And maybe he should deliver on the many things he's promised but failed to do. I don't know, like that business aid? like the rapid testing. Oh, I don't know. Maybe you should focus on maybe coming up with a plan for the vaccine that may or may not ever come and get it out to the people because that'll require some planning. But no, he has lots of meetings all the time. And I watch them. I see them talking to the United Nations about all these opportunities, globalist visions. Maybe he should just focus on what's going on here at home. And not to put a too fine point on this fantasy. I mean, maybe it's not a fantasy because his newly appointed Bank of Canada governor sent out a note urging the country to pick up the pace of tackling climate change. Excuse me? But that is not your job, Bank of Governor. Bank of Canada governor, that's not your job. Your job is to make sure our dollar doesn't disintegrate. That's what your job is. So stay in your lane, dude. Your job is not to worry about the sky falling because I guarantee you no one right now actually is thinking about that. And we have seen no polling in the last six months that puts climate change even in the top four or five issues. Right now, people care about economy and health. And I guarantee outside of him, Mr. Trudeau, and a few other elites, or Greta, they don't give a fig about the sky falling on their head. They care about the bank about to take their home. But that's the kind of language that we're starting to hear more and more of. We will talk about all of this and more. Um, we got a busy show today. Uh, wanted to talk about, of course, we get news late this afternoon, of this third arrest in connection to the murder of 12-year-old Dante Sebastian Andrietta. And um, you see a picture of this little boy's face. It's the first time I've seen actually an image of this beautiful little boy there smiling, wearing his magician hat. And it uh, comes on the same day where we learn that this little boy's murder will actually give life to nine other people because his parents made the very agonizing decision to donate his organs. I mean, can you imagine having to make that decision? And certainly it would be good news for those families, but uh, their lives and children's lives have been spared by this little boy whose life was absolutely stolen. It's just heartbreaking. But I do, I do at, at some level. I hope his family does get some kind of comfort from that. I've talked to a lot of parents who lost children and their organs were donated, and they do find some kind of comfort. So at least we hope that uh, for them. And we should raise um, the GoFundMe page has now been set up together uh, to, to for Dante uh, and the family because of course they've got to pay for funeral costs and all these other things. They've already raised about thirty nine thousand. But um, if you're interested, it is set up on the GoFundMe. And, um, you know, you got to wonder, like, where's the outrage? I, I don't understand why enough is not enough with this case. Like, where's Black Lives Matter? Where are all these groups? Who is doing anything about this? And interestingly, rapper Meek Mill, who I, I could literally not name one song. I know the name, but I don't know his music. He's trying to do something about the issue on social media. And he blames social media for fueling the gang war. And he'd be right. We've heard that. He shared a tweet saying he'd give out record deals if rappers can put their beefs aside. And it was met with such backlash, it was so harsh, he shut down all his social media accounts. So now we're at a point where a rapper trying to stop gun violence, gang violence, and killing is apparently more offensive than the killing itself. That's where we're at, folks. It is utterly backwards. Shocking. Good to have you here on this Tuesday and some will call it the collateral damage of this pandemic when we hear about medical procedures or issues getting derailed because of the virus but if you're the one found in the middle of it it is so much more than that it's every bit as ser- serious or threatening as getting the virus itself and then we- When it comes to children being involved, I think it takes this thing to a whole new threat level. And we've heard numerous reports of people who can't get timely treatments, you know, people being turned away from hospitals. But when you hear Sick Kids Hospital, one of the best hospitals in the entire world, is now turning away up to two thirds of children that are being, you know, told their life-saving procedure has to be either canceled or canceled or postponed. You know, f- for many of those children, it can mean the difference of their life being forever altered or threatened in a very permanent way. Marla Klug is mom to four-year-old Emmett. She joins us now. Marla, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. This is one of those stories where Emmett, I think, becomes the face of a threat. You know, he was born with one leg four inches shorter than the other. He was supposed to get surgery last summer in 2019. That got postponed. And now he's still waiting. But the window is closing on this very specific time frame where he has to get this, you know, corrected or the way he walks could be forever affected.
3: That's absolutely right. Um, So, as you said, Emmett was born with one leg shorter than the other. And that difference grows as he does. So now he was originally supposed to have his first surgery when he was three. He's now almost four and a half. So we have been waiting for the first surgery for 18 months. And in that time, he has continued to grow. And we really need this surgery and we need it soon.
0: What are the doctors telling you? Because I don't think it's as simple of you know as them freeing up a bed. What are the what are they telling you? The options are and and what you could be looking at or what Emmett could be living with.
3: So from day one, um, our surgeon Dr. Kelly at SickKids Hospital told mm-hmm. us that the wait times for these surgeries are quite long. As it stands, SickKids had very little our time and very few resources to deal with all of the surgeries that their patients require. Um, And when COVID-19 hits, that wait time was just blown completely out of proportion and is now just exacerbated.
0: I have to think, you know, I I know that kids are pretty tough. They tend to be more resilient than us parents. But I have to think that as a mom, uh, this pains you in a way that probably isn't pained by it. I mean, he's the one affected by it. But I I have to think this just pains you.
3: You're absolutely right. I mean, to know that your child is born with a rare limb difference where only a handful of doctors in a handful of places all over the world, can help. Um, and then to know that that access is so limited, it's, it's heartbreaking. I mean, there is so much anxiety and worry that any parent faces, um, but this is a whole new level. And the fact that it's not very common, it can sometimes make it a very lonely experience.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the world's going on without you. You know, the headlines are burying us all in this noise of COVID and politics and all the rest of it. And you're probably sitting there thinking, I just want my child to have the very best opportunities and fairness in life. And here we are being completely ignored by the world. And it's not like you have the option. It's not like you can call a a doctor in the United States and say, hey, can you help? Because they have their own issues. And then you've got border issues. Uh, So you're kind of you're stuck in a very broken system.
3: Absolutely. I mean, the, the helplessness that we feel has all been magnified. I mean, I think everyone can say they feel a little lonelier in COVID times. They feel a little bit more vulnerable or, or helpless in COVID times. And for parents like us who need surgery and need it soon, I mean, I think those feelings are just exacerbated.
0: Does Emmett understand what's going on? I mean, I, 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 I have to think that, you know, he still plays like other kids. He probably makes the best of it, tries just as hard, if not harder. I mean, he goes on with his life. Is he aware of what's going on?
3: He is aware that he has a long leg and a short leg. Um, and that's really about all. There, We have never treated him any differently. We have never um, told him that he's different and he's able to keep up with his friends so he's happy and easygoing and bright and social um and the challenges will come you know we never mentioned surgery to him because he's never had a date so why worry him and put it on his mind unnecessarily
0: And certainly, you know, doing it younger when bone growth is developing, that's the time to do it. So what is the window deadline for you guys to get him the very best uh, result of this? Um, And is there the opportunity to get it when he's a little bit older?
3: So from my understanding, you know, when Babies are really infants. Their bones are really soft and really Mm -hmm. malleable to the point that you can't even do surgery because they're so soft. And then as they develop, their bones get harder. Um, And so Dr. Kelly likes to perform his surgeries during that in-between stage where bones can still be molded and shaped um, because they're still quite young but they're old enough that there is actually some hard bone to work with. That ideal range for Emmett's first surgery was three years old. So we've passed the ideal range. We're not completely out of the woods yet. If it happens, you know, soon, if it Mm happens now, you know, can we wait years and years? The surgery will certainly go on and still will be helpful, but, the fear is, is that his recovery will be a lot longer and a lot harder.
0: Yeah, certainly. I mean, the older you get, the harder it is to, to correct things. I think, you know, when I read this story, and, and I'm not sure if it's, it's being alarmed or saddened, is that Emmett is one of just so many kids um, that are facing, you know, he's got the leg issue. There's children with uh, cleft uh, palates that have to be fixed. Mm-hmm. There are children who are, are waiting for surgeries, and all of them are being pushed aside and told no. Right. We're all
3: considered to be non-urgent, non-emergency <sighs> surgeries, and I really struggle with that definition.
0: Yeah, I bet, because at the end of the day, if, if you can't put a child before um, anybody, it's bad enough that we tell cancer patients or heart patients or anybody else, but as an adult, it, they can comprehend that. I think when, when it's a child being basically the decisions made for them, that, to me, is is where we've hit this threshold of of that. We've got to wake up and and you are willing to speak out. What would you say, you know, to those in charge, not not just the premier, but you know, there's so many levels of government and so much blame to go around. But what do you want them to know?
3: i I want to acknowledge that we have all been hit with a really hard deck of cards now. I mean, every level of go- government has been, rolling out programs that they never thought they would have to, spending money that they didn't expect to. we are all been thrown through a loop. And mm-hmm. I appreciate and acknowledge the money going out to businesses, to families, to uh, tenants in order to help the economy going, help families that are struggling. And I just hope that they will give at the very least the same attention and the same money to kids who need surgery. You know, if if our society doesn't look after children who need surgery, then what are we doing here?
0: Yeah, it's pretty hard to put a, a price tag on uh, the health of a child, um, you know, and that we have to even think of it that way is a, is a pretty sad state of where we're at. Well, Marla, I, I appreciate you um, being so open and candid about this. We'll continue following your journey, and I just uh, hope people can appreciate th- that there is a real face to this issue, and I appreciate your uh, being so personal about it. Thank you so much. That is Marla Clug joining us, and uh, for every Emmett there is Probably a hundred more right behind him. And that that is just the sad reality of where we are at. So we will continue to follow this. Uh, When we come back, we'll throw around a bunch of the day's headlines. Of course, there's never a shortage of them. And we'll do that in round one of our counterpoint. Brought to you, of course, by our friends at Peetzville. I'm Alex Pearson. Stay with us. This is On Point on Global News Radio. 46 here on this Tuesday, and as we learn about the miracle Dante Andretta gave to nine other lives today, we also learn about the life given to a nine-month-old Guelph baby who has now been literally given a second chance of life thanks to a total stranger. The baby's name, Matthew Philip Benham, and he'd been in Toronto sick Kids for months battling a really serious Bilaria uh, atresia. This is a uh, bile duct condition where the liver is damaged and gets blocked, and he was deteriorating quickly. And the only thing that would uh, um, liver transplant. And as often happens in this case, it took uh, the efforts of a plea to the public to find a match. And so the plea goes into a Guelph paper, and it just happened to catch the attention of a 25-year-old Guelph man who decided, yeah, I'm going to step up. And so despite testing and despite poking and prodding and cutting himself open, he just did not think twice about giving part of his liver to save this baby's life. And he did save Matthew's life. His name is Derek Roy, and he joins me now. Great to have you here, Derek.
4: Hi, thanks. Great to be on.
0: Safe to say you did not go out, you know, looking to donate an organ. I mean, what struck you about this baby's plight that made you want to take such a a huge step? Um,
4: Honestly, I'm not sure if it was anything in particular. It was just um, I came across the story in the Guelph Today um, on the website, and uh, I felt so bad for the family for having to go through that. And uh, I knew I would be um, a match um, in terms of blood type. And I was young enough to be able to donate, so I wanted to to do my part and help on the off chance that I would be a suitable match going forward.
0: And was Matthew the kind of blood type or match type that is very rare?
4: Um, I'm not sure, actually. I think it is one of the more difficult uh, blood types to match. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be um, O-negative, so I'm a universal donor, so I knew that that just wasn't going to be an issue for us going forward.
0: Wow. And so, you know, you go and you match and you go through all these different tests. I mean, it's not exactly like giving blood. There's, It's a very invasive process. It's also a process that takes a lot of time and recovery, but you stepped forward. And I have to think that Matthew's mother and father, the parents, the family must be just, I don't even know if there are words really to describe what they must be feeling.
4: Um, yeah, we I was actually lucky enough to meet them over the weekend um, on Sunday with with a lot of measures in place to protect against uh, COVID 19, of course. Um, and yeah, it was very nice. It was really nice to meet them. They were very, very grateful. Um, it, it was an interesting kind of experience. I, I don't really know how to describe it, to be honest. It was, it was, it just kind of left me speechless um, as something to be a part of. Like, I don't know um, how else to put it, to be honest with you.
0: Well, I mean, there's a beautiful picture of you and this little baby on on your lap. I mean, they're the two of you are. I mean you're you're forever bonded to a stranger um, who now has part of your body in him, and the reason he's alive is because of what you did. So I would think it's pretty hard to describe that feeling, but y- did you feel a bond?
4: Yeah, I think so. Um, it, I mean, I'd only seen a few pictures of Matthew um, beforehand before I met him, and and he didn't look in good shape. Um, so when I got to to meet him in person, he looked so much better than I could have imagined, and he was so active and happy and and that was just you know really special to see and then, like when I got to hold him i mean i, I mean he is a baby, but I thought we got along really well, so <laughs> <laughs> and i I hope going forward that I'll be able to keep in touch with him and the family and and be around as he grows up a little bit and um and I think we'll have to a pretty good start so.
0: Well, you know, yeah, you, you you pretty much are. I mean, as I understand, just from looking into the story, um, you know, this baby was very jaundiced. Um, you know, obviously, when 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 you need a liver, I mean, your body um, is basically dying a slow death. And and as soon as they put this organ in him, he he kind of you know the blood started flowing, the color came back, and so just on that alone, um, your liver, the portion they took, gave him this new lease of life almost instantly. And so, what's the recovery then? And for you uh, and for Matthew that you know of, because I I, I know that his uh, medical uh, stuff is private, but I mean, is it expected that both of you will be just fine?
4: Um, Yep, it is expected that we'll both do really well. Um, I mean, there's there's always some risk um, with liver donation that um, I guess Matthew's body could reject it. Mm-hmm. um but that's that's always going to be a risk, and it's something that they 'll monitor. I know his recovery will be a lot more difficult than mine going forward um and it will be a much longer process um mm-hmm. so far as far as I know he's been doing really well, which is you know really nice for me to know um in terms of my recovery it's it's really been um not as difficult as i don't know as as his i would be the only comparison I can think of um it's been a lot of just you know laying around letting my body recover and everything, but I feel great and I haven't had any complications or any issues like that, so it's been, it's been smooth sailing for me, really.
0: Yeah, as I understand, that's one of the organs that kind of regenerates very quickly. Um, did you have any second thoughts going in, and when you came out, um, did you have any regrets?
4: Uh, definitely no regrets, um, and no, not, not much uh, hesitation, really. I actually sent my fiancé the article um, and I didn't say anything. I just sent her the article, and she replied with, "Yeah, let's both give it a try. Let's both see if we're a match." So um, I knew I was going to have a higher chance of being a match than than she would. We both knew that. Um, but yeah, she had. She was very supportive, and so we both, you know, jumped right in and, you know, wanted to do what we can.
0: Boy, she must be expecting a big Christmas gift. I mean, if you give a total stranger a liver, I mean, she, she knows she's got a landed herself a pretty special guy. But, um, yeah. you know, I think it's uh, it's interesting. But you do plan on continuing a relationship with this family?
4: Yeah, I'd like to going forward for sure. And I, th- I think and- they would as well. So so hopefully we're, we'll be able to keep in touch um, over the coming years.
0: Well, you know, there are so few headlines these days that uh, bring kind of light into our lives and 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 bring a smile. So it's just it's so nice to read a really positive story. Um, you know, such a small thing, you know, that did did and had such enormous enormous benefits. Not just uh, both for you, uh, but certainly for Matt and, and his family.
4: Yeah, that's um, that's something I've been hearing a lot uh, today since the uh, since the Gulf Today article the follow-up article came out um, that a lot of people are happy to hear a, a positive story for a change because I know it's been a it can sometimes be a while in between those um, but yeah yeah it's has uh, yeah. well, an experience for sure.
0: Well good on you Derek and uh, it is truly the gift of giving and, um, and and you did just that so I thank you very much for joining us and uh, and, and honestly uh, there's not many like you but we uh, salute you thank you. <laughs>
4: thanks thanks for having me on.
0: That is Derek Roy joining us. Hey, everyone, you know, thinks, yeah, I could do that. But it's it's different when you actually stand up and, and say, yeah, I'll do it and then go into the operating room. So there you go. Two lives changed. Uh, more than that, families change forever. It's just a... Like I said, nice to hear some good news for a change. When we come back your news at the top of the hour, and have our courts become too politicized? We'll talk about it because several liberal appointments to the bench suggest indeed it has, and now it's going to turn into a court challenge. We'll talk about that coming up here. Stay with us on Point. Alex Pearson, this is Global News Radio.
1: Earlier today, Minister Baines introduced the new Consumer Privacy Protection Act to give Canadians more control and greater transparency over how companies handle their personal information. This includes allowing people to move their information from one organization to another and the right to have their information deleted. For companies that don't follow the rules, the CPPA gives the privacy commissioner order-making power and the highest fines amongst G7 privacy laws.
0: There you go. The Prime Minister talking about the Digital Charter Implementation Act. Long time coming. Long name. But yes, today uh, Canadians got a little bit closer to taking their power back when it comes to how tech companies take and use our private data. And the overhaul comes as a lot of countries around the world are trying to strengthen data protection and privacy laws and to regulate to whatever degree they can the Internet at a time when tech companies are just kind of running wild and continue their power grab of this ever-growing data-driven economy. So this proposed legislation will, in part, um, you know, give you, the user us the user more control over how our personal information is used by companies you know it also will give us a chance to request the data they take be destroyed And if it passes companies would face fines of up to five percent of revenue or 25 million bucks whichever is greater for the most serious offenses so how much is your privacy worth and i, I think we also have to you know start asking like how much are we going to you know, protect it ourselves? John Wunderlich is here with us. He's a security expert with John Wunderlich & Associates. He joins us now. Good to have you, John.
2: Hi, Alex. Good to be here.
0: it has got a nifty long name, but you know, what is this and, and how actually does it help uh, us, the consumer?
2: Well, it's definitely an improvement over the uh, existing federal statute for consumer privacy. And pretty clearly, the goal here is to make sure that uh, cross-border transfers of data with Europe, the United States, can continue to flow and feed into co- commerce. So, in one sense, this uh, this act is uh, is a commercial act for for businesses that, uh, in the course of that, uh, protects privacy. Uh, It
0: seems. Sorry, I was going to say, it seems like it's long, long overdue. Um, We haven't had really any kind of update on these types of laws. But does it stop a company? You know, when you walk by a store, you know, you walk by the Gap, and all of a sudden, your phone is, you know, sending you a hey. You could get twenty five percent off of Gapware. I mean, does it stop that kind of, you know, data gathering by companies, or is that still something out there? And but consumers can now fight back against it.
3: Well,
2: what the law does, as I've read it, and it's 124 pages, so I haven't had a chance to read it in detail, but it makes a very strong statement about consent uh, that uh, a valid consent must be obtained before you collect information. Uh, but then it provides a whole list of uh, exceptions to uh, the collection and use of data for consent. And one of those is uh, businesses' legitimate interests, and very much will depend on how the regulations are written. And how that applies in practice, because certainly a marketing person says it's my legitimate interest to collect that information and give you tailored ads based on knowing exactly what your shoe size is and where you spent your last vacation to that to that marketing person. That's going to seem like legitimate interest. You might think differently.
0: Right. But how on earth would that be policed? I mean, you, you, you have to create a whole new bureaucracy, it sounds like, if I understand you correctly, to start policing this.
2: Well, it doesn't. Uh, it does. It's still a complaint-driven um, uh, mechanism. So one of the things it doesn't do is provide a the equivalent of consumer protection acts like uh, electricity. You don't have to make. Sh- you don't have to test your electrical appliances when you get home to make sure that they won't electrocute you. Uh, <laughs> you you can trust that we have consumer protection laws. that says the, the handling of the electricity, is uh, is on site and, and protective. So because this is still complaint-driven, it still depends on you to police what's being done with your data and then to complain. Now, if you do complain, there's a much more robust system for uh, providing remedies, uh, although it's a, two, it's a two-step process. First, you have to complain. Then the uh, then the Price Commissioner, if they agree that your complaint is well-founded, can tell the uh, company to stop doing it and enter them into a compliance order, and once that's happened, then... Uh, if they fail to do that, then it can be referred, or if it's egregious enough, they can refer to it a, to a new tribunal that's being created by this act uh, with people appointed by the government to view uh, recommended fines. So the commissioner will be able to recommend fines, but this uh, other tribunal appointed by the government will make the determination of what those fines are. Right. So it, okay. It Sounds like- it's pretty long winded and complicated to, to get redress.
0: No kidding. It's uh, it's like going through a different kind of court system, which is going to be very slow, and, and you'd have to be very dedicated to, to what you're looking at. But then you have to kind of look at it and say, well, how much responsibility do we as users of big tech, uh, you know, have to 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 bear? I mean, you know, if I want to put every dinner meal out there or whatever my kids every move, I mean, a lot a lot of people just put whatever they want out there, thinking that well, here's my life I'm sharing, it. and they don't give much thought, be it dancing on TikTok or on Facebook, as to where it's going and how it's being used. So at some point, I think individuals have to take a bit of responsibility.
2: Well, yeah, sure. But uh, do you, again, do you have to take a resistor, uh, a a resistance tester when you go to buy a new tool or a refrigerator to make sure it's not going to leak free on? There's certain basics you should be able to expect because uh, those are consumer safety rules. And that's still uh, still not not in place. So I take your point. Absolutely. yeah, You have to be a responsible uh, user. But uh, if it's a free for all where it's the lowest cost and the default wins, uh, that's not necessarily good for privacy.
0: Right. Um, and at what point, I mean, what are we talking for timeline? Obviously, this has to be a push through the House, and I'm not sure it will get uh, total uh, coverage. I mean, the NDP would probably support it. I'm sure the Conservatives will have some issue with, um, you know, free market. Uh, you know, the, it, it'll take a little bit of time to get passed. But then once in place, is it just uh, up your, I mean, how long do you see this before we start to actually see the results of it and the protections from it?
2: Well, I'm not a lawyer nor a legislator, so this is speculative. But off, <laughs>
0: well, you've had off, a good day said, then. <laughs> so first off, uh,
2: it's, uh, the uh, privacy stuff isn't left and right conservative NDP liberals. I've, I've met um, at privacy conferences people from both ends of the spectrum that are very high on privacy, civil libertarian types. And right. again, on both sides of the spectrum, people that are very much interested in top-down control uh, from the state for a variety of reasons that they think fair. So it's not clear that uh, the Conservatives or the NDP will necessarily hinder or help. I suspect there will be a variety of of voices on this. But once it gets through, and I think it will get through, everybody has agreed that that something has to be done, Uh, the question then becomes the writing of the regulations and the implementation. So one concern would be whether they're signaling for privacy but are, are planning to drive for data flows to facilitate data flows for commercial. So one of the uh, problems of the the last law that some people in my community are worried about, for example, is commercial use of of commercial data. So in some provinces, that means that uh, pharmaceutical representatives uh, or pharmaceutical companies can get access to detailed doctors' prescription records so that they Mm. can detail uh, and, and market possibly more expensive or certainly more profitable drugs to the doctors based on that. So that seems problematic. Uh, other yeah. issues, uh, there was no mention, and this was the Consumer Act, but uh, you talk about this being a long time coming, the Privacy Act, which protects our privacy of citizens and completely ignores the privacy uh, responsibilities of political parties because political parties aren't subject to any privacy law. There was no mention of that in this update of privacy laws. So there still remains work to be done.
0: Oh, yes. I'm sure it'll uh, all come out uh, at some point, but I appreciate you giving me what clarity uh, you can. And um, I wish you nice reading tonight as you go through (laughs) all the uh, very long-winded explanations of better you than me. Thank you.
2: Thanks very much, Alex. Have a good night.
0: You too. That's John Wunderlich uh, joining us, who's a security expert. Of course, you can listen to us Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson. Join us here on Point. This is... On Point on Global News Radio.